Oh. <laughs> we both scared together then. Right, so on the Tim Marner podcast show today, I've got my friend, Juice Nell on. Hello. Hello, John. Hello. Hello, Drew. Hello. Um, I'm not quite sure where to start and how to start this off. I think what I'd like to do is before, is just kind of, what were you like before? Oh. How do I want to start it off? <laughs> because I, I want to know, because obviously I didn't know you before, did I? No. Before your accident? No. I didn't know before your accident. So tell me, what were you like before the accident? Um. So I, I, I think I was very much still the person that I am now, still quite bubbly, quite outgoing. Um, I think the big difference is I had a very corporate career. Mm-hmm. that I worked really hard, worked up the ladder to. And I was really proud of that in my head. I always had this thing that I wanted to show the girls that you could be a mum, you could have a really good career, you can be in a yeah. relationship, you can have nice things, but your work ethic's really good. Always quite adventurous, always a bit of a balloon. So Nothing changed then, really. <laughs> At all, apart that. from you had a very sort of businesswoman mindset. Yeah, um, it's it's really funny because when I had my accident, two things that my mum and dad have said to me that just stuck with me forever. Um, so the first thing was when I had my accident, I had a company car. It was lovely. It was like really chuffed when I was driving it. Thought I've done this. Yeah. And then when I couldn't drive it because I couldn't use my hand, it was a manual car. My mum said to me, you know, was it really worth it? Look, you've got a car outside. It's really lovely, but it's getting taken away next week because one, you can't drive it until you're not at work. So is it really worth it, everything that you put and sacrifice? Because you do sacrifice a lot of stuff. Um, And the other thing was, my dad said to me, um, after obviously the shock of the accident, he went, oh, he said, um, it's so good. I feel like I've got my little girl back now because that work bitch isn't there. Like, really? Cheers, Dad. <laughs> Thanks for that bit of So knowing to you, you have been different. You, in fact, you're quite a bit different. I think that... Your outlook on life. Yeah, outlook on life is totally different. Um, I think that when you're... Very much when you're in that corporate world and you probably have a job with responsibility, you, you kind of let that define you. And I used to think my job was the definition and what I did was the definition of who I am and when that gets taken away it chucks you into a very dark place because you then start questioning who am I who is this person now that's not in that corporate world that doesn't walk around in power suits that doesn't you know I don't have a plan because I didn't know what was around the corner and I was like shit what what am I doing like I've told you before I went through a phase of uh, I didn't know how to dress so I went through a phase of going downstairs in my suits and my high heels right let's take it back first right because obviously we've been had this conversation right so we're going to start at the accident okay right and what actually happened yeah so take me through it what the day was like and what what was going on um so very typical day, I used to work out of Nottingham and Bolton. Yeah. So on this particular day, I was working in one of the offices in Nottingham. And um, there was a, an accident 
on the um, A50 getting to Nottingham and I remember thinking oh my god I'm going to be late for this meeting that I had booked in it was quite an important meeting so I did you know the rushed into into the office got everything out got everything that I needed had to sign in because I had to reply to an email went to plug my laptop in and where the um, plug was you couldn't see that side of it had been smashed off and when I put my hand to plug my laptop in my um, hand attached to the live wires and what should happen is that it should shut you off straight away so when you touch a domestic supply it should shut you off and this didn't um it carried on electrocuting me in a sense are you getting electrocuted in silence yeah yeah I and it's not what you think you know when you think of someone being electrocuted you think like like I've got a vision in my head now of hair sticking on end yeah, yeah, yeah. and like smoke coming yeah. out and you're kind of like this shaking thing and that's totally the opposite of what happened. It was very silent, me thinking, holy shit, I can't get my hand off. And that's what I can remember thinking. So I can remember consciously thinking I can't take my hand away off it. Are you thinking you're going to die? Um, at that point, I didn't think I was. But after um, lots of therapy... How long are you attached for? I can't even tell you. It felt the people like around you know what was going on? Or did they just think, oh, you're just trying to find the... Um, people didn't know until after, because after it chucked me, I managed to get my hand off it and it chucked me back and I how, actually... How did you manage to get off it? I don't know. It just... I, I remember trying to pull and pull and pull and pull and I don't know whether it just got to the point where... The circuit just stopped, or I, I don't know. And I remember getting myself off, and I remember sitting there, and in my face, I could feel like all the like electrical like current in my face, in mm. my chest. My chest started going tight, and the first thing that I did was throw up. And I remember running to the toilet, and I was just violently sick everywhere. Um, and then I come back. And a couple of people that had noticed that something had happened and they'd got the first aiders ready for me. Um, so then when they saw me, then they called paramedics and the paramedics came into the office and they were worried that I was going to have a heart attack because when you get electrocuted, apparently it affects your nerves or your heart. Um, so they were obviously wanting to make sure that I'd either, because I'd had chest pains, I'd either not Can you had talk a heart at this attack. Point? Um, yeah, I remember talking, but I remember being very, like, jittery. I think I was in, if I'm honest with you, I think I was in total, yeah. excuse the pun, shock. Shock, yeah. Total shock. Because it's not something that you expect to happen. You know, I wasn't, I don't know, it's weird. Because if I was in a factory and I was working with, like, things that could cause injury, you're probably more guarded, aren't you, to the yeah, fact yeah, that yeah, you yeah, might yeah. get hurt. So yeah. you probably guard is, is up. I was just getting ready to go into a meeting. So, you know, I had no guard there because I was just getting getting on with my day. Um, so then the paramedics took me to Nottingham and they were happy. They'd done like, they'd probably done about six ECGs then. So they were happy that I wasn't going to have a heart attack and I hadn't had a heart attack. Um, but my hand started feeling really funny. So I had like pins and needles in it. And I just thought it was the remnants of the feeling being of electrocuted, being electrocuted. Yeah. And I remember them saying to me, you know, 
it doesn't look right, but we're, we're acute care, so we're looking if you're going to have a heart attack. We're happy. You're not at home. This isn't your place of home. If it's bad tomorrow, go to your local hospital. It's just like, right, okay. Get so didn't tell, I'd text my husband now, Mike, I'd text him and I'd said like, something's happened at work. Just like I've that. I've been electrocuted and he was like, what the fuck, what? What do you mean? Because it's like, you just don't expect it. So he was panicking and I was like, my mum and dad were watching the youngest and watching, watching the kids. And I was like, I'm not going to tell my mum and dad because what can they do? They can't mm. do anything. They, watched, they just didn't want to panic anyone. And I remember getting home and by that time, Mike was on his way home from work. And I remember opening the door to my dad, and my dad looked at me and he went, what the hell has happened to you? What do you mean? And he said, you was just, you were white. You was totally, there was just no colour in your face. And I honestly... So from going to the thing to going to the hospital, you came out the same day? Came out the same day. Shit. Drove, couldn't drive home properly, but all I wanted to do was just go home. Right. All I wanted to do was just get home. And, it, and I do definitely think it's that fight or flight thing right, in yeah. you. That I had that adrenaline that just, I just needed to get home. Yeah. And obviously you didn't really admit that, yeah, there was something wrong with you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I remember, like, my dad was like, my God, what's happened to you? And I walked in, and Mike, like, by that time, Mike, when he was like, right, just get, have you ate something? And I was like, no. And I was shaking, and he was like, just get something to eat. And I just threw up all over myself in the front room with the kids there, and mum and dad there, Mike there. And it was like, it's like when your body goes into that fight or flight, and I don't know whether I'd just got home and because I'd felt safe, mm. your body just then releases all the adrenaline and everything that's in there. And then it just kind of started from there, really. It just went bad to worse from that what? moment. What? So tell me. So the next day, I started getting blisters and, like, really red and angry, swollen hand. And um, we went to hospital and they were like, all right, okay, my God, what have you done? This is like high-voltage electrocution. And I was like, no, it's not. And they just couldn't work out why it had... Like, it looked like it did. So then it was like, right, okay, elevate it, keep it up. Next day, if it's no better, come to hospital. We might have to send you to Withingshaw to the burns unit there. So it's like, right, okay. So the next day, me and my dad went. And by this point, my dad was fuming. Oh. He was just like, that the whole thing had happened. Right, right. So he was like you know, what what has happened to where you wanted to get to the nitty-gritty of everything that was going on. Yeah. And they, the hospital at Trafford said, we're not happy with this, so they referred me to, got sent to Withinshaw straight away. And then next minute I was at Withinshaw having all these nerve conduction tests on my hands because they said that the nerves had been fried, they thought, and it was causing massive problems because at that point I couldn't, there was certain, um, a certain number of fingers that I couldn't move and I was getting pins and needles and it felt like it was burning and um, and they were like, this actually, this really isn't right. But they didn't quite know what was happening to it. So I was in, so we went home and then I had to go back the next day and kind of like lots of different people were trying to figure out what had happened and all of them kept saying, you know, this shouldn't have happened on a domestic supply. This is like actually really bad. And um, then they 
they started questioning the nerves. It had gone to the, it had kind of really started to um, attack the nerves in my hand. So they reckoned that because I had little fingers and little wrists and little hands, that the current was so strong that it affected everything. So everything started kind of um, deteriorating really quickly. So then they got this professor to come and see me now by this point and this is like probably in the space of two weeks of going to hospital every day them trying to do stuff things weren't working mm. um i went to see her in the morning and she looked at my hand and my hand was starting to go blue and mockley what does that mean um well i i, I don't i just was like this just isn't right she looked at it and she was like right okay i think you medium nerve because you have a nerve that goes like cut through I keep wanting to show you with that, but it's not on. <laughs> you have like a medium nerve that goes up through there and, and sometimes if they release some of the pressure in it, it can stop the tingling, stop it from going blue. And she was like, listen, this is actually could get really serious if we don't do this operation. So I know you've come to see me for a consultation now, but I'm going to get you into theatre in an hour and a half. And I was like, right, okay. It's just like rung my and I was like, right, I'm going to they're going to take me into theatre and he was like fucking all right okay so he come like from work is that are you thinking at that point look there's something seriously wrong at what point did you at that point i thought they seemed quite panicked by it yeah because getting in in and i thought that's like for them to turn around and say listen you know this this is pretty serious now we need to get you straight into theatre it doesn't usually happen so um so they did what they needed to do, and then I was in a cast for, I think, for about two or three weeks. Now, in that point of it being in a cast, all I remember was feeling like a burning sensation. Um, and the touch of the cast on the skin was really sensitive, so it felt like it was, it was like glass. Like rubbing against Explain the Explain to me. I mean, so, you, the thing is with you, because your pain threshold is just like, for you to say, how bad are we talking? Um, at that point, it was, it was, it was starting to feel like it was in burning oil. So if you can imagine like putting, just putting your skin very near a chip fat, fat pan, like in the old school, like yeah, when yeah. like your grand used to have them, just like kind of touching the top of that. So that's what it felt like. So I knew all that it, the time. all the time. So I knew that it didn't it wasn't normal. Um but I didn't know what was happening because nobody said what what was happening. Mm. Um so yeah, it, it was it wasn't a nice time because you're kind of dealing with the unknown really. Um and then when they took the cast off my dad come with me and this is one of the memories that I'll, I can never ever take away this memory it's, and, and it's one that makes me really really sad out of everything that's happened it's this memory that really gets to me and they took the cast off and when when they took the cast off the the fact that they scraped it against the skin for it to come off it was like it was going through a window like it was going through a broken glass. That's the only way that I can describe it. And when they went, I had all the dried blood and everything over my hand. And when they put um, a wet paper towel on it to wipe the blood off, I have never screamed in my life like I did then. 
Um, and it was like, it was like someone had got a shave of glass and just gone like that and gone into it and just kept doing it. That's what it felt like. And then it just like kind of went and just like radiated. So like it had gone from like being in a little bit of chip fat to the, just the whole thing being in and submerged in burning oil. So as I was reacting in the way that I was reacting, I remember my dad just like him, like in the door frame, they're just this, and he's a big guy from Salford. My dad is like, you know, he's, mm. he's not, yeah, 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 he's, yeah, yeah. he's not like a, a soft yeah, yeah, he totally is. And he was just crying, just stood in the doorway, just crying while all the nurses were like, right, we need to get this guy out of there. The press needs to get out of there. So we need to get this pain management guy in. And the next minute we had all these people in and they were like, right, okay, we think you've got something called CRPS, but don't research it. Whatever you do, do not research it. Don't get any of your family members to research it. This is what we think you've got. The less you know about it, the better. What? And I was like... I don't even understand that. Right, okay. So basically this condition is called CRPS, which is Complex Regional Pain Syndrome. And it's quite a rare condition. And there's, there's two types of it. So there's type one, which you could potentially fall over, hurt your ankle and could develop CRPS. The other one, which is the most severe, is through an injury or, or a trauma. And because I had such a big nerve injury, I got it like really severe, really severely. So they were like, you know, this is really bad already. So we need to get you under pain consultants. We need to get you under hand therapy. We need to go through this whole desensitization, mirror therapy, um, physio, and then we're not quite sure if it's going to work. Did, did but we're work? Did try. work know what was going on? Um, they they did, um, but they I think they just they didn't understand it. They didn't understand it at all. Um, so I think their tactic was was well, we'll probably just not deal with it. Yeah, and it'll eventually go away. Yeah, at some point. Um, which was which was hard. Yeah, it you know that that kind of messed me up a little bit because from something that you're so committed to and you know you've made personal sacrifices for for them to have that tactic is really harsh. Um, so it just kind of carried on from there, really. So I remember from that moment being at the hospital probably four times a week every, having different things happening and it would get worse what and it sort of pain medication worse. are you on um, so first I was on um, something called gabapentin which is like um, it's like a nerve yeah. tablet mm-hmm. um, and then I was on morphine shit um, and kind every of every day yeah so I used to take tablets um, is, and is this stopping the pain? At the time, it, when I look back now, I think no. But at that point, I didn't know what was happening to me. So I just wanted to take anything that would kind of help. Um, I did go, they were really good actually with Insure because they, they picked, um, they got me really quickly to see a trauma psychologist. Yeah. 
she was based at the um, burns unit within Shaw. What's a trauma psychologist? So she was, she was, she worked for the burns unit. So basically anybody who'd had an injury would be picked up by her. Mm -hmm. So the way she helped me was, it was very acute. So it was very, um, this is what, I, I couldn't comprehend what was happening to me in my head. It didn't make sense because it wasn't logical. You know, it wasn't, a, right, you've got an appendicitis, so we know you've got that, so you'll have that operation, and yeah. that's it, you'll recover from it. From this, there was no definite route of plan of where it was going to go. Nobody quite kind of knew how it was going to work out, and everyone kind of was just seeing how it was going to go. But I'd have to have all the treatments every day. Um, so I struggled a lot with how to deal with that, how to deal with being in pain all the time. Really how do you deal with that? Um, I had like an hour by hour strategy. Yeah. So my strategy was get through that hour, right, done that, get through that next hour. Um, did she tell you to do that? No, I did that because it was the only way that I could deal because the thought of having it like that until... God knows what time it was just too much. So I used to go right. Okay, it's nine o'clock now. I'll get to ten o'clock. Yeah, ten o'clock. Right, get to eleven. And and some might say you're kind of wishing your life away, but at that point it was a pain strategy and it worked because it was just something to focus on. Um, <laughs> it sounds nuts to think that. <laughs> it's just horrible. I just go through an hour of pain and then I can do another hour. Yeah. Of pain. Um, but then I really struggled with how it changed me because I went from being really independent and really not like in a independent in a I'll do everything by myself but I was really capable of everything that I was doing I was capable you know of being a mum we used to do all sorts with the kids and and I was very hands-on and I went from being like that to I couldn't drive I couldn't go out of the house because if I went out of the house and it was windy the wind hitting my arm would feel like it'd be going through glass um I couldn't interact with the kids because no one could touch my arm properly so when Boo was a baby and I was having to change nappies it was really difficult or wanting to put her to bed and you know when Holly was you know she was going through the last stages of primary school and she wanted me to be like the hands-on mum that I always was and suddenly you can't be that and I used to get really angry and really beat myself up about not being able to do those things and everyone's trying to help you and you don't want anybody's help because you should be able to do it yourself and um so she had kind of helped me deal with all that you know the identity thing you lose who you are you lose your identity um and it's it's shocking. It, it really is to um, go from one extreme to the polar opposite of what you're used to in every way. I used to think I was failing with Mike, you know, because he didn't sign up for all that crap, and I'm dragging him through all this, and and everything then becomes quite self-absorbed with how are you going to deal with this situation, right? You've got somebody's birthday. How are you going to go there physically when you can't go in a car because the vibrations of the car are hurting your arm too much? Um, so this kind of carried on for months and months. And then... Through them, if you don't want me asking, yeah. 
have you did you think about ending it at any point in no. that? What's it? What was Never. your what was your what was your strength, the kids and Mike? Yeah. Because we're talking like the worst pain. Yeah. That anyone can ever imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um and they it's funny because they have they have like a pain guide. It's like um a scale really yeah. of pain. And you have like a natural childbirth, no medication, self-amputations up here. And then CRPS is like up here. It's Self-amputation? One, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of the worst things that you can get. Um, I never thought about ending it because I had too much to live for. Um, I never... I never did the why me neither because it just wasn't productive to do that. It just wouldn't have given me anything that I didn't know already. <laughs> There's no point going, why, why me, why me, when? But have you done this yourself again or is it working with a trauma um, therapist? No, I did that myself. But okay. I think that's maybe a little bit of my personality yeah. that I've never really... Lost. Been You've like always been that. Like that. I've always been quite... Um, Strong. Strong and, and quite positive yeah. to deal with things. Um, so I, I, never, I never got like that. I remember them saying to me, I remember the pain specialist saying to me that it was getting really bad and they needed to take me into hospital and they didn't know how it was going to go. But they needed, the intention was they were going to take me in for a week to 10 days. They were going to, do an operation where they would put like it's called a plexus block and they would operate while she was awake so it's quite um they do it like under guided um scans um and they paralyze your arm Fuck that. yeah they paralyze your arm because at one point it was like that and it was stuck and the skin was falling off it and my nails were falling off so and, is your basically your arm dying yeah that's exactly what was happening um I remember, I'm digressing now, but I rem- I've just got a memory then of, it was summer once and everyone would like come round to sit outside. I don't know whether it was someone's birthday or what. And I was like, oh, I can't sit outside because it's dead windy and it's hurting so much. And I used to like be trying to be dead brave when people were there. And Mike was like, right, we're going to do something about this. And he built me a box. And I literally would sit outside with my arm in this box so the wind couldn't get to it. And, you know, just so you could feel a part of something. Um, Anyway, they took me in to have this operation. And they said it was going to be horrific and the pain was going to be really bad and they were going to try and reset my arm and whilst it was paralysed, they were going to try and work on it. don't even want to hear this story. And they didn't know how it was going to go. But we had to kind of trust them, really, to, to know what was happening. So we went into hospital and they took me in theatre. And the guy who was my pain specialist was a bit of a maverick as well. So he was a little bit of a, I think a little bit on his ego, he wanted to be the person who would cure this CRPS, which was so bad and so aggressive. But then I think he was just a bit of a maverick anyway into trying new things. And I kind of sometimes felt like I was a little bit of a, um, what's the word, a little bit of a test for him yeah a little bit so we come into theatre and he was like right okay and they were like doing this guy I was in theatre for quite a long time 
And then they paddle awake, yeah. And they're like, oh, you know, I can remember him saying, all right, there's the main artery, and we'll not go near that. And I was sat there thinking, fucking hell, don't, please don't go near that. Um, Honestly. (laughs) And and then I come out, and they'd managed to, from it being like that, they'd managed to put it in a neutral position. But they did that whilst I was awake, so you could hear, like, the bones, like, moving. It was like, it's gross. Um... And then I got back to the ward and, and Mike was there. And I remember going, oh my God, look, look what I can't do. And I picked my arm up with this hand, forgetting that it was paralysed. And I had this massive like cast on the bottom of it. And my arm just went poof like that and hit me in the face. <laughs> and I had this like big breeze on my nose. And Mike was like, such a dick. Oh my God. Um, anyway. After a couple of hours, it started failing. The pain started coming back. There was a pain relief for a bit. Yeah, I couldn't feel anything, but it, that should have lasted for like three days, and I got like two hours. And by this point, they were like, "This should not be happening." They were pumping this stuff in me to try and get it paralysed again, and it just wasn't happening. So then the next day, I was in theatre. They did the same thing again. Come out of theatre an hour later. The it started to paralyse my face and everything up there, so my face started drooping, and it just wasn't working again, it had worn off. Then the next day, they got me into theatre again. It started leaking out my chest, um, so they had to, like, do... What do you mean it was leaking out your chest? So I had, like... Because they were trying to do it in different places. They had, like, these holes from previous oh, operations. Right, right, yeah, no, so um, I had, like, a water leaking out of the site, which was obviously, like, the drugs that they use yeah. to paralyze your arm so we got the nurses in and they ended up having to like do like a little mini operation there so as they were like trying to recite it and pump medication and it was flying out of this hole that was in my chest and Mike was like Jesus Christ it was horrible horrible to see and then um in between that they were then trying to do physio so I was on like gas and air and while they were trying to and just like people to it was just oh, it was horrible it was really horrible and then after that, the pain specialist come in and said, listen, this is incurable. What? And now he said, it's, you're at the stage of CRPS where there's nothing they can do. It's incurable. Um, so he's, Maverick's giving it up. Yeah, Maverick's like, the only way we can do this now is pain relief. What did um, you think? So I was like, that? right, okay. And it's funny because my mum was there and my mum's, my mum's a bit of a tough cookie like me, so she was like, right, kind of taking it all yeah, in. Yeah. Mike's sister was there, she got really upset. She was just like, I can't believe this is happening. And I was sat there and I genuinely was like, right, okay, I'm glad to know that you've told me that because at least, least now know. No, I know yeah. what I'm dealing with. I know that you're not going to be trying all these daft things now. There's not going to be that hope where it's going to miraculously get better. And I know now in my head what I need to deal with now so I think from a mental perspective I felt better him saying that because I'd rather have that than them going oh you know we'll keep trying and we'll keep trying and you're kind of setting yourself up for something that's not going to happen so then he went right okay so we need to go on opiate medication now fucking hell so I was like right okay so he said I'm just going to start you on some ketamine so he gave me this ketamine and I remember just like kind of flying back into my 
Like I remember being sat up and then just going back and being like, oh my God. Absorbed into And And then I were kind of like vaguely remember some conversations that were happening about it being horse tranquilizer and I was like that's ridiculous that's not what it is and obviously it is mm. um and then I come out of hospital for that week with ketamine liquid ketamine in a massive bottle that I had and I used to have it probably about four or five times a day I was on tablet morphine I was on liquid morphine I was on gabapentin I was on these tablets called naproxen which were like a massive anti-inflammatory every single day I was on yeah yeah every single day so I think I took I think we counted at one point that I was taking like 40 tablets a day with all the different liquids in as well um and at the time I thought that's what I'm being told to do oh Savitex as well that was another one so that's like pure marijuana spray um and I thought right okay so do what they're telling me to do do what they're telling me to do and I could not function how long were you on it for um I'd probably say about two three months on all of that you just like walking out like a zombie I didn't even know what I was doing I know there was times when like Holly come home from school and I was on the couch because they tried to give me amitriptyline as well and it made me pass out and she didn't know what to do and I was shaking and she got really upset and I was like do you know what this this shouldn't be a memory that my kids are having about me I don't want them to have that memory can you remember saying that to yourself in your head yeah I remember saying this is even though you're off it and you watch it you remember yeah I remember saying that I remember being really paranoid and your behaviour changes when you're on stuff like that because you don't know what you're doing and and you've got all the side effects of the meds that you're trying to deal with makes you really paranoid really like I remember becoming really paranoid with Mike and um convincing well not convincing myself that he was going to leave me but I was kind of saying like this this is just just go this is just not for you you know it's not for you and he's like well hang on a minute what what have I done there (laughs) I've done nothing there you know and he was finding it really difficult to cope with and deal with um, and he was trying to deal with it himself and watching me go through everything and having to pick up everything that I couldn't do. And financially, you're struggling because obviously you he's losing work because he's having to come to hospitals, he's self-employed with me. and um, So it, 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 there was a lot of things coming at us. And then people trying to deal with it in their ways and some people would get upset and some people wouldn't some people would avoid you because they don't know what to say and it was a very very strange time but I remember thinking to myself categorically that being on these tablets and not helping me it's a hindrance rather than it being help and the pain was still massive so if I was on all that and the pain was still massive they're not doing that much because if you was on all that you shouldn't really have any pain and then that might be a something to that might be like a bargaining tool of you think right what do you take the pain or your sanity but there was nothing so I remember saying to myself right tomorrow is the day that I'm not taking tablets and I do not recommend anybody doing this because it's hideous but in my head I was like if I don't so do you, it now I'm not going to do it for two to three months and I stopped 
everything all of it cold turkey cold turkey stopped it what happened you know the scene in train spotting where he falls through the floor yeah yeah yeah, that is i used to when we used to watch that film and i used to think that surely does not happen fucking hell it happens it was hideous like sweating and it's like your mind's gone did you tell mike that that's what you're doing um, or did you just not do? till not till probably mm. about a week after, but I think he'd already figured out at that right, point, right. and he was like, "What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing?" Fuck, you know what a brave move um, that is. But no advice off anybody. You just like that. Don't ever do. Yeah, don't wean wean off it. It's it's hideous. At one point, I remember saying, "I want to take my own skin off." I was that itchy, and I wanted to like. I was that claustrophobic in myself. Mm that I wanted to whip my own skin off. And it's it's mental, it's crazy. But that is, you know, you think that's what it's like coming off them. What are they doing to you while you're on them? If that's what the consequence is of coming off them. Anyway, I kind of like weaned off it all and um, it eventually did get out of my system. And the pain was no more or no less. You were just clearing your head. But I was clearing my head. So then it was like, right, game on now I am dealing with this what are you thinking when you say I'm dealing with it what are you thinking I'm not going to let this destroy me right yeah so and this is where you've kind of got to probably put your big girl pants on really and accept that you are going to be in pain in a big pants them aren't they big pants yeah massive massive pants Um, and it is that acceptance that you're going to be in pain but I wasn't going to let it rule my life. And I was never going to go down the, the why me? I was never going to go down the, this is not how I want my life to be. It was, the, it was a life. I've got a life. I've got two kids. I've got a family. I've got a husband. I'm not going to let it beat me. And then, um, then you start coming up with strategies yourself. Mm. So distraction strategies are great. So it's fill your day with with things to do. Night was always bad for me because obviously when you're not distracted, it just so you used to get into a cycle of just not sleeping and then you get used to not sleeping. And then, you know, that was really um, quite tough. Um, And then the... At any point, did you sleep? um, Probably like for like hours an hour a couple of hours here and there but you're never truly um, asleep are you no no but you get used to it your body gets used to it yeah um and then my arms started going really bad um so it it looked like it started to look like a bad prosthetic so if you can imagine like it looked plastic mm. and it was like white blue and it started to go through the I used to call it the frostbite phase, and I still get that now. And that is like when it's it feels like it's in burning oil, but it feels like frostbite at the same time. And I literally felt like I could get my hand and snap it, like snap my fingers off, snap my wrist off. Um, like when people have gone to Everest and they get that frostbite, yeah. that's exactly what in my head it felt like. Um, and... It wasn't moving. It wasn't. It wasn't doing anything, really. And and I had a very 
distinctive line of where it started and when it stopped. Um, and it just got worse and worse and worse over time. And it, it, we kind of like got to the point where there was no more treatments that they could offer me. They could offer me a spinal surgery to have this like spinal cord stimula um, stimulator and it's like a kind of pain relief thing, but they said that that wouldn't have worked. It was too far gone for that point, so there was no point trying it. Um, and I remember seeing the pain specialist and I had all like um, ulcers on it so like kind of like flesh wounds started to repair it all gone like really the skin had gone really crusty and that it was really weird uh, and I, rem I remember going in and looking at him and he was shocked from seeing me like two weeks previous and he was like actually I think we need to we need to like kind of look at amputation now and it's not something that I really Have you thought about it before? Oh, I was at the point where if they hadn't, if they hadn't, honestly, I genuinely believe if they hadn't have done it, I'd have probably done it myself. Um, and he's like, but you know, I'm a pain specialist, I'm not a surgeon and there's always that hope that it could improve but I think we're getting to mm. the end so I'm going to book a meeting with a pain specialist and with a, sorry, with a professor and we'll kind of like come up with a bit of a strategy. But by that point, it was too late. I was already getting sepsis by that point. So I was becoming really ill. So I'd like flu-like symptoms and um, temperature. Couldn't really speak properly. And we went to A&E and they were like, oh God, right, okay. And then the Professor Lees, which is this amazing um, professor who works at Withenshaw, my mum was in hospital with me and she looked at my mum and she went, has she got a quality of life? And my mum went, she's got nothing. She, she really hasn't. Everything, it's just taken everything from her. And um, and she looked at me and she went, right, okay, I think we need to get it amputated now. I think we're at that point. You're starting with sepsis. If it goes around your body, it's going to kill you. And we'll take it off anyway. But that, by that point, it's the infection's gone. So if we take it now we've got a chance of saving any potential infections. And a I chance. Was like, yeah, I was like, yeah, no problem. But they said, but the caveat is to it, is we don't know whether it'll take the pain away. We don't know if it's going to stop the pain, but now you've got the start of this massive infection, so we need to take it off for that reason. We don't know what it's going to do to the CRPS. Your body could interpret it as another trauma, so it, it could go worse. We don't know are you prepared to take that risk? And I was like, yeah, you need to do it quickly. Cause, and I did say to her, I said, I'll do it myself if you don't. And she was like, right, I, I get it. I totally get where you're at now. And then the day after I went to see the um, Ability Centre, which is where, um, it's like a specialised centre for people who've had amputations. Went there, met the team there, met the doctor there, met the counsellor there, had a look at some prosthetics, um, and they just wanted to get me familiar I think with the place and that's quite a daunting place to go to because when you go to that one it's full of like older people who there's like a few kids there from kids that have had like meningitis and stuff um, but the majority of them are older people so like diabetes so they've kind of not really not that they've not taken care of themselves but there's usually a self consequence yeah, yeah, yeah. so the mood in there is really like people yeah. have like given up don't want to be there yeah. and it's really hard going into that thinking oh my god right it's really intimidating um 
but the people that were there are absolutely amazing people um, so they were all in agreement that it was going to get done and I got um, I got a, le- um, a date for in like two two weeks time that's when the plan what's happening at work at this point do, oh, they, do they know they, you, yeah yeah they knew they know that you're gonna have to get your arm off and stuff and yeah they knew didn't really understand what was happening don't think really believed what was happening mm-hmm. um generally managed really badly which which they you know they owned up to that fact that it was managed really badly um but by that point for me it was too little too late they'd done so little that it's there was nothing that they could do that would make up for how badly it was managed. Um, so I think how, when you're at this point now, how how much in debt were you, Mike? Oh God, we got to the point where we had to borrow probably about fifty grand. Um, because it takes a hit on everything. It's like. You know, things that you don't even realise, like obviously I wasn't working at all, but, you know, Mike Mike had to, um, he was working at Liverpool at the time, he had to give up that um, contract because he just couldn't commit because of everything that was happening at home. So, you know, people often think, oh God, it was really bad for you. And it's like, actually, it was really bad for all of us because we all had... Yeah, it was happening to me, but his career had to take a hold. You know, he was watching his future wife go through all this stuff, um, all this medical stuff, and and we're having to try and deal with the kids and try and make sure that the kids aren't going to end up with some bloody deep-rooted psychological issue in years to come from what they've all seen. Um, And... I think it, from a relationship perspective, it it got to, it it took us as far as we could possibly be with each other, but we chose to not let it break us, and it's probably made us the strongest mm. that you could be because I think to go through something like that, yeah. you've got to come you come out of it either one way or another, um, you know, and then when you you're planning on telling people that you're having an amputation as well. It's like, it's crazy. But what, talk me through the amputation process. Well, so, how, what do you do? You go in and go, right, okay, we're going to do it there. Yeah, so they, so they give me a date. It can't be that. They give me a date and um, they, it was like, I think two and a half weeks of when it was going to happen. So all I thought was, right, okay, this is now my strategy. So my strategy is I'm going to ignore me. I know what's happening to me. I, I've known this was going to happen for a while before anyone even mentioned amputation. I knew it was going to happen because yeah. you can just, I could tell there was yeah. no way it was ever going to recover from it. Um, so I kind of already accepted that it was going to happen. What I was worried about was everybody else and how they were going to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So my youngest was two. We spoke to nursery and had to get, um, they give us some books called Amputeddy. So we used to read to her about Amputeddy. That's pretty cool. It it is, but it's heartbreaking as well because you just think, God, I never thought, you know, you'd have to be in this position of doing this. 
So we read that to her and there was a, a girl on CBeebies who had, um, she was born without, I think, her left arm. So we used to say, oh, mummy's going to have an arm like that. You know, just so she had a visual. And then um, we might got a picture of me when we was like on holidays, I think the, the couple of years before, um, and photoshopped it with a stump. And we give it to people to have a look at so people could see. Because what I didn't want is when someone saw me for the first time, them going, oh my God, and it'd be all a little bit awkward. And You're going to get that though, aren't you? Yeah, you are. And you, and you do. Yeah. But I just wanted, I think more, not for me, I think for other people, I just yeah. wanted them to see yeah. what it was going to be like. Because I think when you visually see something, you can prepare for it more rather than knowing that it's happening yeah. but not having anything to... I never thought of it like that. Quite, to yeah, it's quite to good, um, prepare it to. So at least I knew then that people would have a snippet of what I would look like after I come out of hospital. Um, and and I was... It was funny because I was there for everybody else then. So while everybody else was, like, breaking down, yeah. I'd be, like, on the phone talking to everyone and kind of, like, helping them through it. And... Um, and then it kind of come nearer and nearer. And I think the nerve setting, I used to have this, I had PTSD really bad. And um, I used to have this dream about what dying. What do you mean? So because of the shock of everything, it's, um, it's post-traumatic stress disorder. And anybody can get that. So when when you think of PTSD, I used to think of squaddies yeah. instantly. That's the people who got PTSD from yeah. being in the army, from the things that they've seen. Um, that would be the category of people who would have that. And, and that's not true. Anybody can have it. So people have developed PTSD on being told that they've got cancer. People oh, can really? develop PTSD from somebody close to them passing away or getting poorly anything it's not clear trauma, that. I didn't know that yeah, yeah. A, a, any kind of trauma traumatic experience for that person can lead to a PTSD effect and what are some of the so my symptoms were I used to feel my skin burning um, and I used to put like my arm in front of people's noses and go can you smell it and they'd be like no, and you could tell they were looking at me thinking, fucking hell, what's yeah, going on with that? Yeah, yeah. And they were like, no, we really can't. And I was like, I can smell my arm, but I can smell flesh. Really? Yeah. Um, and then another one would be, I'd feel it in my face. So whenever I looked at a plug socket, I'd get the feeling, I'd feel it all like there and all in my arm. Um, nightmares. I'd get really badly. Like what? Um, like dying. So I had this um, reoccurring nightmare of, and, th- and that didn't help with the, when you get nightmares like that, you don't want to go to sleep neither. So that doesn't help with the not sleeping thing because when you fall asleep and you instantly have a nightmare and you're screaming in bed and Mike's like trying to wake me up and Fucking you don't want to then go to sleep. Um, so my dream it's just was... just one after the other. Yeah, it was. My dream was um, I was in an operating theatre I'd flatlined, they were trying to work on me, they couldn't, they couldn't stop me from dying and I was like on a screen, I was like behind this glass trying to punch the glass to get to me, to stop it from happening, right, so 
when I went to see this psychologist called Phyllis, who is an absolute legend, is Phyllis, um, I used to tell her about this dream and she's like, so you're scared of dying? And I'm like, but I wasn't scared when I was when I was getting electrocuted, I didn't think of anything. I didn't think of anything apart from, oh my, I need to get off this. And it was only when we did this exercise where you have to be that third person watching yourself and going back to that moment. Because I'd never really gone back to that moment because I'd avoided it. Fuck man, Phyllis. So, <laughs> goddamn Phyllis. Um, so How is she, she taking you back? Is she talking? Is she hypnotising you? What's she yeah, doing? Yeah, so she hypnotised me. Quite, so by, I'd, by the time I got to this point, I'd probably been with her for about four months before I could even get to the point of... She's the trauma back. specialist. No, she's, she's a different right. one. So she was the person who put everything together. Mm. So she put the trauma, the accident, the pain, the amputation, the living with it after, the what I thought about myself, everything together. So you saw her after the amputation? Yeah. Let's let's go back to the amputation okay. bit, right? Because that's the bit that so, you've never really talked to me about before. Right, okay. So, so I was having this dream. So then I thought that was a premonition to my amputation. So in my head... I was going to die yeah. through having that because in my dreams, this must have been the operation. So as it was getting closer and I kept saying to Mike, you know, I'm just going to go and do a will. And he was like, what do you mean you're going to go and do a will? And so I toddled off to the solicitors with my mum and dad, made a will, sat my mum and dad down and said, right, if I die, I want Boo to have my engagement ring. I want Holly to have this. And I was literally separating everything I'd wrote Mike the kids a letter for if something happens to me and I remember like kind of Mike thinking why on earth is she doing all this but I'm not going to say anything because obviously she just needs to do she needs to go through the process of whatever and I think in my head it was such a logical process I think right I'm accepting now that if something happens to me I'm doing everything I can now to make sure my family, my tribe, are going to be okay if I'm not there. Um, and then we went in to um, hospital, and it is literally, you know, like you get a letter, right? You'll be in half past seven in the morning, you know, go to um, day case unit, can get yourself checked in, and they like literally turned around and said to Mike, right, well, we'll ring you when she's out of theatre. And I was going, no, 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 He's, he needs to stay with me until the minute I go down to theatre, he is not leaving my side. And the professor came in, and and I was saying, you know, please don't, don't let me die. And she's going, Julie, why would I let you die? I, we've come through all this now, I am not going to let you die. And I was like, yeah, but you've got a cut of main artery, so why are you going to clamp it? And she was just like... Like she doesn't know what she's doing. Because that's my job. That's what I do. And actually, an amputation is a really simple procedure. Really? So she was like, do you want me to go through the ins and outs of what we're going to do? I was like, yes, please. And Mike was like, Jesus Christ. He was like, God. Um, And then they turned around to Mike and went, well, just give us something to calm down. And he was like, yeah, please do. And he got me a card, which to this day will stay with me for the rest of my life and and it's funny because he's got me it as a poster in the studio now and I have it above my desk and the card was today is a good day and he wrote in it and he was like this is the start 
of our lives now. Um, and I just thought, yeah, that that is it. That's the start. Today is a good day. So then um, went down to theatre. Woke up. I was in theatre for a long time, so I think they said it was going to be like a couple of hours, and I was there for about five hours. So by that time, everyone kind of started losing the shit, really, and thinking, yeah. oh, God, what's happening? And then I remember waking up in theatre and um, going, right then, where's Mike? And they were like, are you all right? And I went, I can't feel any pain. Oh my God, I can't feel any pain. Get me a coffee and go and get Mike. And they were like, right, all right then. We'll just go and ring him and get him to come down. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And honestly, I was like, euphoric. No I pain. I remember it, I just didn't feel any pain. Um, and I remember it coming around the corner. How long have you been dealing with pain for at that point? 12 months. Solid. Just solid just every solid single day. Just every single day. Off your back on yeah, pain. Yeah, yeah. To it gone. Like that. Gone. And I remember him coming around the corner. And they always say that when you have an amputation, there's, there's, two, there's two times when you can lose it. And that's when you wake up from theatre. And another time is when they take the bandages off. So we come around thinking, geez, I do not know oh, how shit. she's going to be. <laughs> And he walked around and I'm like, I had a cup of coffee going, <laughs> and he was like, you all right, love? And I was like, I can't feel anything. This is amazing. And just honestly, it was like a massive weight had just gone vroom, like that. And um, like the doctors were going, I can't, are you all right? You look like you've had like 10 years lifted from you. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then... I went to the toilet, I was like, right, I need to go and have a wee. Went to the toilet and, and there was a guy in recovery and he was talking to the nurse and I remember when we was coming back, him going, oh my God, the poor girl, she's so young to have an amputation. I was like, I'm fine, don't worry about me, I'm great. This is the best day that I've had for 12 months, don't worry about me. And I think everyone was a bit like taken back really, but unless you have been through the pain... Yeah. You, you can never understand what it feels like not to have it to go from one extreme to the other and then obviously like saw my mum and dad and stuff and it, and it was you know it looked it was massive in like these massive yeah. like bandages it had like a big blood drain that was like collecting all blood in its little thing and it was proper gruesome but I was dead happy and I was like right this is the start now today was a good day and this is going to be the start of things to come um and and then the drip I had like a drip that the power like the same thing the paralyzed your arm and stuff and then that started wearing off and they were like oh right, okay we need to give you some pain meds now and I was like no I don't need that and they went what do you mean and I went I don't need any meds I'm fine and they were like but you've just had your arm amputated and I was like but it, it isn't as painful as what it was before okay, no. so I'm alright I don't I don't need to they couldn't it. even get their heads around no it's only it. then that they were like holy shit yeah. we now understand how much pain you was in and I remember like get, like different anaesthetists that weren't even part of my case were coming but they were like have you not taken any medication I was like mm, no um, and then and then it was kind of like thinking about okay now's the time for recovery and now's the time to get stuff sorted now get my life on track kind of get a bit of normality with the kids let let me be a mum again um and 
and that and that did I kind of got home um trips to the hospital they they took um the bandages off um it it was how how it was. It was um. It was, it was just a massive version of what of what it is now because it was dead swollen. Um, and I was fine with that. I can't. Mike's gonna die now when I tell you this. So when they took the bandages off, I said that it looked like a massive penis, and he was like, Jesus Christ, and I kind of like was like the queen of inappropriate jokes because yeah, 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 I yeah. think it just kind of made everyone laugh so it just instantly made yeah, everyone yeah, feel yeah, comfortable yeah. so the nurse was laughing her head off I was laughing my head off Mike was and it just took the nerves away um, and I remember my dad ringing going oh I love you okay and I went dad it looks like a massive penis and he went oh I wasn't expecting you to say that I'll put, <laughs> I'll put your mum on All right, here we go. <laughs> he was like yeah I'm not having that conversation with you I'll put your mum on um, and, and then it was good like Holly Holly struggled yeah so she struggled to scare her. Yeah. And I wasn't anticipating that because I thought I'd kind of done everything with her. Um, but she she didn't like hugging me and she was worried about what her mates would think. And yeah. she was 13. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah, yeah. That's what kids think about then. And would any of her friends start calling her because yeah. I look different? Yeah. And what would people think about me? And... Mm you don't fit into the norm because I don't fit into the norm yeah, yeah. and um, and we dealt with that and I, I remember talking to Phyllis about it and Phyllis was like you know that is your normal teenage response that is what you're going to have um, but I wish someone would have shared that I wish there was someone else that had gone through a similar thing that could have said listen just be aware that this might happen because it totally took me it, it mm. just knocked me for six just didn't expect it yeah um, and, and she's, you know, she's got, totally got over that, um, that now. And, and with the little one, she was really accepting of it. She didn't even question it. It's mummy's stump and that's it. She doesn't even think it's anything peculiar. It's just mum's stump. And, you know, if someone will say to her at school, like, oh, your mum's got no hand. And she's like, yeah, she's got a stump. So it just doesn't even I enter her that. head. I, it entered me more the fact that I wouldn't, she wouldn't know me with two hands. That upset me so much, and and it's like well, doesn't make any difference now. But at the time, I was devastated. So um, when, when you're with Phyllis now, then yeah, and she's doing that bit of hypnotism on you. Yeah, what she what's she doing? So she's she's basically helping me now put everything together. So I had a trauma psychologist and that was very acute, very dealing with pain, shit, what's happening to me now, kind of psychology. When you have an amputation, you then get picked up by the counsellor at the the ability place. So that's like dealing with having an amputation, Mm -hmm. dealing with having no limb. And then Phyllis, for me, was the one that put everything together. So looking back... I think because I didn't put everything together, even though people on the surface of it probably thought I was dealing with it really well, inside I had a lot of demons with it. You've blocked some stuff away. Yeah, blocked some stuff away. Very harshly critical with myself. Um, And I needed to go right back 
And it's, I think what I've found is with anything, with any kind of psychology, unless you get to the root of the problem, you're never, ever going to solve it. You've got to go back to the root of the problem. And it's only when you deal with that, you can start dealing with everything else. And I had to go back to that day. And to go back to that day was was horrible because it did make me realise that I did think I was going to die. Um, and that obviously then was the traumatic event that kind of built on everything. And then because everything went so badly so quickly in a succession of not being able to process anything really, I'd gone like 14 months of just having one thing after another, after another, after another, after another. And... Um, I, I still think I had that strength of character in me, but there was things going on in my head that I couldn't explain, and and they weren't logical, so I couldn't understand what was happening to me. So mm. like the burning, that's not logical. So I was thinking I was going insane, yeah. but actually what it is is your brain, it's the memory part of your brain and your senses that are on so, they're so heightened that it, it triggers that memory so that memory is constantly being triggered in your head so everything associated with that memory whether it's smell touch feeling you go back to that point because your brain's not dealt with it and that memory's still being triggered so you have to go back to all that um and then after i'd had the amputation i was kind of really good and then it was really funny from not i wasn't expecting it um, I looked at myself in the mirror and I just thought, right, okay, in my head, I've not got an arm and that looks a mess. So if I perfect that part of me, that part of me, that part of me, then it'll kind of take away from that being a mess. And that's the kind of thought process that I got. And I started being really hard on the way that I looked. And, um, give, me, give me some examples of what you mean. So, like, probably not eating properly, um, wanting to get like the, in my head, what would be the perfect figure to kind of compensate for, for that not being there. Um, I was really critical about what people thought of me. If people judged me in the street, I wouldn't come out of the house because I didn't want anyone to kind of target me. I, I went through a really vulnerable stage. Um, I questioned like, what was Mike doing with me? Cause if, we met on that first day years ago. If I had one arm, would he still want to be? It's just really irrational thoughts, but I think thoughts that everybody yeah. in my position would have. Um, and then I started with um, fits. So I started kind of, I had all those thoughts, but then I started thinking, right, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to... I'm going to be kind to myself now. I'm going to start training again. I'm going to do something that I really enjoy doing that's going to put some endorphins in my body and and I'm going to get back to that. And then me and Mike started to plan getting married. Um, and it was really lovely to have, because we had a focus of... Something just, to look forward yeah, to. Yeah, and it was like so positive and so lovely. And at that point, I was like not at the phase where I wanted to show my stump to anybody. I'd not even put it on social media that I'd had an amputation. So there was only the people that knew me in person, mm. knew what was happening. Because I just thought, oh, sod that, I'm not having like... One, I don't want the pity party that I'd follow. And two, I just didn't want to put myself out there of the risk of people judging me. 
Um, but then when the wedding got nearer, kind of, I think when you focus on something positive, your mindset changes. Mm. So I then started to um, not wear my prosthetic as much. Or my prosthetic was like a bit of a, it's great for covering it, but practicality of it was a bit of a hindrance because it's just like a cosmetic one. So it doesn't move, it just stays upright. So it's a bit of a pain. Um, so I started wearing that less and less. And then when they were doing my wedding dress, um, they were making sleeves into it so I could wear my prosthetic. And the day before the wedding, I was like, actually, I'm not having those sleeves in. I'm going to have it strapless. That was the wedding dress that I bought before my accident when we was planning to get married. That's the wedding dress I'm going to have because this is who I am. And I can't change what's happened to me and I'm not certainly not going to hide it. And it was a very big shift in mindset mm. um so so we did we got married it was lovely it was great i didn't wear i didn't have the straps it was strapless and that was honestly the one day that i didn't even think about my stunt being there and it was just a real that wedding day was like just a real appreciation of life and everything that we'd been through and it was really 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 nice really good um, and then probably about three months after that, I started having fits. So um, I started like, they thought I had epilepsy at first. So when they did like the brain scans and stuff and they put me on epilepsy medication, it wasn't working and I was still having it. So I'd have like a mixture of convulsion type fits, which is where you shake. And then other fits, which is where you stare and you can't, there's nothing that can happen to you whilst you're in this place of staring. It's like you're not there. Um, and we had to go and see a consultant in Edinburgh and he um, confirmed that he had disassociation seizures. And basically, the way he explained it to me was your body has been under so much stress for such a long period of time, it, it cannot cope with any more. So when it feels your anxiety or your stress levels going up, your body shuts off. And when it shuts off, you either fit or you go into this like staring thing. So we had to send him videos and everything for him to confirm that that's what was happening. And, um, and then I had to have my license taken off me. I didn't, couldn't train because um, I'd had like feelings of like I was gonna have a fit. Um, and I just really crashed then because I kind of was like I've dealt with so much and at the one point that I thought everything was going starting going on that kind of positive directory it's just crashed again and now I've lost my independence again because I can't drive anywhere and I can't do this and I can't take the kids there and I can't do that and all the other stuff that goes with that kind of negative mindset and then I you're still in debt at this point as well yeah yeah, and then I remember thinking, oh, fuck it, I hate myself now. Just yeah. hate the way, I hate the way that I look, I hate the way that my, um, I'm getting these fits, I can't do anything for myself, I've been through too much. Um, so then I started secret eating. What which, does that mean? Okay, so my secret eating was, um, and I'm saying it with a smirk on my face now because it's, it just shows the place that I was in. And I do think any type of eating disorder, whether you've been cheating, 
you've got anorexia, bulimia is a form of self-harm. So you've got something inside of you that you're not happy with and you're trying to hurt yourself. And that's the way that you're doing it. It's just a very unconventional way of cutting yourself. It's more obviously conventional. Um, So because I hated myself, I would eat. And I would eat in a place where no one would see me. So it could be anything and everything and binge. But I would not be sick with it. I just... And it's like I wanted to punish myself. But then I got in a cycle of doing it. So when things weren't going my way, I'd then binge and then I'd think, oh my God, my jeans are getting too tight. I'd cry. I'd go and eat a Mars bar in the utility room because anything that happened in that utility room didn't count because no one could see me. It's just, it's ridiculous. Um, and then before I knew it, I'd put like two and a half stone on. Felt shit. Wasn't training. Just felt like I'd given not I'd not given up on life I just had enough of dealing with the crap that was being thrown at me and I think there's very there's a very big difference to giving up on life and just uh, you know just being fed up with what was in that point um and then again it's that yeah having to be honest with yourself I mean my lowest moment with when I was binge eating was when I went into Holly's room and she had this hexagon easter egg that she'd been saving for about six weeks because she didn't want to eat it because it looked so pretty the design on it and I went and scoffed it and then had to explain to her that a mum in a flipping secret eating binge had scoffed her easter egg that she'd been keeping for six weeks and at that point, it was like, right, what are you, what are you doing? And I remember like saying to Phyllis, right, I does Phyllis um, know all this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And saying she didn't know because I didn't tell anyone. And I was saying, right, this is happening to me. I recognise that I am harming myself because I'm not liking the way things are going. I'm in a path of self destruction. And I recognise now that I need to get myself out of it. So this is what I'm going to think... This is what I'm thinking of doing. What do you think? And she was like, yeah, look, you know, you've you recognise what you're doing. You know why you're doing it. You have to change that mentality. You I have to change. Because you've got to... There's got to be a point where... Um, you know that it's not... It's not doing you any good. So how, how do you do it, though? Um, for me, you have to be brutally honest with yourself. Yeah. So I had to have a long conversation with myself to go, right, okay, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? And I, I remember looking in the mirror and thinking, why? And it was all rooted to this. But then... Then I had that when I got married and I was okay. What had happened was, when I started having those fits, it was like another thing that had just happened and it was like another thing where you had to build yourself up. And I think I was just fed up of crashing and then having to build yourself up in the fear of something might crash again. Um, so me and Phyllis used to talk about different strategies. We used to talk about mindfulness a lot mm-hmm. and being kind to yourself. And I was very hard on myself. How did you be kind to yourself? I had to stop being hard on myself. 
So I had to stop looking in the mirror and loathing myself. I had to look in the mirror and go, you know, you've got a lot of things that are good in your life. And I used to then list the good things that were in my life. Like, even like, the, you know, the things that you don't think of, like, you know, at night I can sit in bed and watch some TV and hug my husband. That's a, it's a good thing, you know. I, I get to see the kids go to school and they're educated. It's a good thing. You know, they've got two dogs that are, you know, fill the house with, like, doggy joy. That's a good thing. And take it right back to the basics of what you have. Not what's happened to you. You don't focus on what's happened to you. You focus on what you have at that moment. And when you start shifting that mentality, that's when everything starts looking different because you're going out of that negative. This is what's happened to me. This is where I am at this moment. This is all the bad, the bad, the bad, the bad, the bad. And when you reverse that and go, actually, this is what I've got. And yeah, things have been tough. There's there's worse things that can happen to people. And I'm still here, I'm still living, and I'm not going to waste it now. And I'm not going to punish myself anymore because I've done enough of that. I couldn't help what happened, but what I can do now is use it. And I will use it to help people. And when I started to think like that, things started becoming better. Um, And you... It takes a lot to get out of that. You've got to keep practicing it and keep saying things in your head to confirm that reinforcement. Because it's easy to, if something doesn't go well, it's easy to go, oh, you know, this is happening. It's like, right, hang on a minute. What, in reality, what is happening here? Not what you're feeling about a situation. Feelings and reality are totally different. Your feelings are how you're personally reacting to a situation. The situation's a situation, and when you kind of separate the two, you can deal with your feelings after. Um, and that's that's how I've trained my mind now. And I think because I understand the way your mind works, that helps a lot. So, you know, my sessions with Phyllis have gone from her helping me deal with everything to then me questioning how everything works and you know to help other people that have possibly been in a similar situation um or struggling with anything um and that gives me strength now to move forward and to think actually i'm not a victim of what's happened to me I actually think I was probably destined for this to happen to me to do what I'm, I want to do and I want to help people and I do think that's part of my life's path um, but it's been a hard lesson to learn and I do think now is probably one of the best things that's ever happened to me because it's took me right down to the bare of what's important in life and my perception of what what's important in life and you know family friends and how quickly life can change so it's having that appreciation and it's not about you know everyone likes to have materialistic stuff it's not about materialistic stuff it's about what makes you you and we talked before about 
you know what defines you as a person so many people can get um confused with that statement and I was one of them so I let my work my job define who I am well actually that's not who I was what I was is the person inside that person inside that still um you know is goofy and and, and laughs is still there um I've had to just believe now in myself and believe who I am and that's the definition of me not what I'm doing as a job not what I wear not shoes what, what car I drive that doesn't define you that's just nice stuff that you can have powerful that mate that's like fucking like blowing my mind that shit you know <laughs> I just um, we just you need to spread this message don't you yeah um, and it needs to be everybody and it needs to be in schools and people suffer because like can you imagine how many kids out there standing in front of the mirror and hate themselves yeah it's, it's it scares me yeah it's, you it know scares I've got, I'm raising well. I'm raising two girls and I've seen it firsthand from social media um, impacts and how um, they can look at a person and go, oh my God, I want to be like that. Or that person's got that. And, and it's like, it's not real. It's not real life. And mm. celebrate who you are. And I always talk to the girls about who they are, not what they are, who they are, who are they inside. So be that person that's a little bit different. You know, don't be afraid to be who you are. Don't go and follow everybody else because yeah. everyone bloody looks the same and everything now. It's crazy. Yeah. But, you know, I've, my journey's been, it's been a tough one and it's been a tough one for people around me to see. And I, I'm still in pain now, you know, there isn't a day goes by that I haven't got pain. Um, but it's happened and I deal with it in the way that I deal with it. And it's, you've got to move on and you have, for me, it, ha it has to be my calling to help people. So whether it's, you know, a little girl who's standing in front of the mirror hating herself because she doesn't fit what a, a social media post says, you have to be perfect. Or, you know, whether it's a guy who's struggling, just talking about his emotions. Anything, you know, when, you, when you've got someone who's willing to listen or got someone who can even just give a little bit of advice, you know, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not claiming to be... But I've dealt with some pretty dark stuff and understand yeah. how to come through it the other side. And, and even, you know, when there's days, dark days, everyone gets them. Even I, you know, I get them, but it's how you, you have your strategy around it and you have your ways of dealing with things. And I think that's a message that's lost with all the materialistic and appearance bullshit. Yeah. It's a lot of that, isn't there? Mm. Yeah. Out of <clears throat> everything that you've been through, yeah. What was what was the, the time you were just like, this was the worst. Out, um, out of all that that you've just talked about, I think um, definitely when I got the fits, because that put me into a place that I didn't expect to go. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just because 
I'd gone through so the, it had been so up and down and and I kind of always felt like whenever I kind of got somewhere something else happened and mm. then I kind of really got somewhere where I could definitely see a light coming yeah. and then when I had that it just crumbled and went yeah. again and I was questioning whether I had the strength yeah. to, I knew to get that, up you know? I knew you were going to say that yeah it's just that that strength yeah. of, of yeah. can I deal with this now again I think that's a strong message, mate. I just, I think the fact that, you know, people do think they're back on it and they've got it and then they go again and then they think, you know what I mean? It's, you've got to keep showing up. You have got to keep showing up. And I think that's probably the strongest message that, you know, life isn't perfect and nobody is immune to what can happen in life. You know, I, I, I say my story now and I think, my God, I could, have read that in a magazine yeah. to somebody else and that's happened to me you know it's never on your radar anything like that would happen and it has and it is that tenacity to just keep getting up and keep going and keep mm. fighting but doing it for the right reasons don't you know don't worry about what people think about you mm. just be who you are be kind to people it's not you know there needs to be more kindness in the world, I think. People. So, what what are your plans now? What you what have you, what have you got in your head to move Juice now forward? So, um, currently, obviously, work with you guys. Um, do start getting some videos going, some podcasts, um, building a website, going to schools. Want to go into businesses as well. Yeah. Um. And try and just get the message out there to as many people as I can, who, you know, on social media. So I do get quite a few people messaging me already that have had like CRPS, particularly on how like strategies on coping. And um, but I think me, it's more around your mindset because I think once you've got the right mindset, you can do a lot um, and you can deal with a lot. Mm. Um, you know, your physical body, I think, can deal with an awful lot. It's whether your mind's in it that's whether you'll get over whatever hurdles you need to um and if i can pass the message on of that and help as many yeah. people as i can then everything that i've been through has been worth it that's it mate i know i've heard it before like it's blew my mind again like it's just like bits again that you just like you kind of remember don't uh, you just like oh my fucking god mate and you just i'm thinking she's talking i'm thinking to myself not again she's going through it again and yeah. the secret eating things just like you don't expect that. No. Do you? No. I turned into a right effort. I said to my, why did you let me, why did I look like that? And he was like, oh, I didn't know what you was doing. But, but that, that's the thing as well. Like, I was at home all the time with my kids and my husband and I managed to hide that for quite a while. And it was only when I started realising what I was doing and I started talking about it, I was like, hang on a minute. Oh. I, when have you been doing all this? So it just goes to show you how your mental health can affect your behaviour. You don't know what's behavior. going on, do you, with people? No. You could be right next to that person, you don't no. know. You know, and it's, you know, people with, with me, I get it in the street, you know, I've got a very obvious disability. Um, and people will react how they are, but again, it's how I am in my head. It's mm. how I deal with that and process that. So when I'm feeling vulnerable when I'm feeling mentally not strong I will see everybody looking at my stump I will see people talking about it I'll see the little judgment looks 
when I'm not worrying about it, I don't see anybody. Mindset. Because it is, because you're not looking for it. And people will be people. Mm. You have to understand that and and be compassionate to them as well, because it's not something that you see every day. Um, But everything is based on mindset. If there's anybody struggling with mindset, or they've been through, or they can sort of... um, think about look I'm going through some of the things they're going through how can they get in touch with you um, contact me on social media um, email me on what are you on social media Snell. J-U-E-S-N-E-L-L there we go right there G thanks for coming on mate thank you I just want to spread this fucking amazing message you've got Um going to think about some of the partners that I've got on board getting in touch with them because they've got some really good contacts in schools and stuff yeah um, obviously we're going to do the photo shoot video we're going to get the website up yes. you're thinking about writing a book yeah. you're doing loads of blogs I am. and we'll get the right PR agency involved um, that's it Brilliant. thanks dude thank you. bye everybody bye